Welcome to Quantum Magazine's podcast. Each episode, we bring you stories about developments in science and mathematics. I'm Susan Vallett. Our bodies consist of about 30 trillion human cells, but they also host about 39 trillion microbial cells. These teeming communities of bacteria, viruses, protozoa, and fungi in our guts, in our mouths, on our skin, and elsewhere are collectively called the human microbiome. But they don't only consist of freeloaders and lurking pathogens. Instead, as scientists increasingly appreciate, these microbes form ecosystems essential to our health. That's next. Explore some of the biggest ideas in science with the quanta book Alice and Bob Meet the Wall of Fire, published by the MIT Press. Available now at Amazon.com, BarnesandNoble.com, or your local bookstore. A growing body of research aims to understand how disruptions of the human microbiome can rob us of nutrients we need, interfere with the digestion of our food, and possibly trigger afflictions of our bodies and minds. But we still know so little about our microbiome that we're just starting to answer a much more fundamental question. Where do these microbes come from? Can they spread from other people like a cold virus or a stomach bug? Now the largest and most comprehensive analysis of human microbiome transmission has provided some important clues. Genomicists at the University of Trento in Italy have found hints that microbiome organisms hop extensively between people, especially among those who spend a lot of time together. Their findings were published in January of this year in Nature. They fill important gaps in our understanding of how people assemble their microbiomes and reformulate them throughout their lives. Other scientists have applauded the study. Jose Clemente Litron, an associate professor of genetics and genomic sciences at the ICANN School of Medicine at Mount Sinai, calls the work outstanding. He says it provides the first clear measure of how much sharing to expect among family members or those who live together. The study also fuels intriguing speculations about whether microbes can raise or lower our risks for diseases like diabetes or cancer, and thereby bring a transmissible dimension to illnesses that aren't usually considered contagious. Brett Finlay, a professor of microbiology at the University of British Columbia, wrote a commentary for Science in 2020 about that possibility. We knew that people with all these non-communicable diseases, which is like 70% of the diseases in the world, we knew that their microbes were dysbiotic, screwed up. We also knew that we could take those microbes and put them in animal models of many different diseases, obesity, diabetes, IBD, and you could transmit the disease that way. We also knew that you know, if you have an obese friend, you have a 57% higher chance of being obese and sibling 40% higher. And so the last piece of that puzzle that we needed was proving that you could actually transmit microbes from one to another. So I was very excited to see it because it really just put the final nail in the coffin that non-communicable diseases maybe shouldn't be called that because there is definitely a communicable aspect to it. Microbiomes are like fingerprints. They're so diverse that no two people can have identical ones. They're also incredibly dynamic, growing, shrinking, and evolving so much throughout a person's lifetime that a baby's microbiome will look drastically different by the time they grow up. 
A handful of microbial species are found in more than 90% of people in westernized societies, but most species are found in 20% to 90% of people. Studies suggest that non-westernized societies have an even greater diversity of microbes and more variable microbiomes. Within a population, any two randomly chosen individuals usually have less than half of their microbiome species in common. On average, the overlap in the microbial makeup of the gut is between 30% and 35%. Microbiologists debate whether there is a core set of microbial species that all healthy people have, but if it exists, it's probably a single-digit percentage of the total. But determining how often microbes pass between people is a much more formidable problem than looking for species. A single species can consist of many different strains or genetic variants, so researchers need to be able to identify individual strains by looking at the genes in microbiome samples. And in a human microbiome, between 2 million and 20 million unique microbial genes may be present with the microbes constantly reshuffling their genes, mutating and evolving. Mireya Baez Kulume is a postdoctoral fellow at the University of Trento and the first author on the new study. To track the spread of pathogens, there is, of course, clear meat, and that was very clear for COVID. I mean, we certainly need to know how this would spread, what were the transmission routes, how transmissible it was. And then epidemiology has been traditionally focused on pathogens, because they spread disease. For the microbiomes, maybe the need was underappreciated because we did not think this would have so much influence in our health. There is this technical difficulty in which the microbiome is not only one bacterium, but it's millions of them. So it's much more difficult than learning how to trace the spread of one pathogen. Until recently, tracing strains through a population wasn't possible. In 2010, Nicola Sagata first began analyzing massive genetic data sets for the Human Microbiome Project as a postdoc at Harvard University. The tools available at that time didn't have the resolution needed to pinpoint which species were in people's microbiomes. They could identify the general taxonomic group that a microorganism belonged to, but that was like narrowing down someone's location to the U.S. Midwest. Over the next few years, various laboratories found evidence that social interaction and living in proximity affected the microbiomes of primates and mice. Studies of humans conducted on relatively isolated populations in Papua New Guinea and elsewhere also found signatures of microbial sharing. Some even found traces of possible transmission from pets. But because of the limitations of those studies, it wasn't clear how much transmission was happening and whether it happened everywhere to the same degree. This changed after Segata established his lab at the University of Trento in 2013. He and his team began to create and refine metagenomics tools that could distinguish between strains of the same species. That made it possible to study microbiome transmission in more detail. Segata started probing this question in 2018 by analyzing the microbes of mothers and their infants. 
His group's findings and several other studies confirmed earlier suspicions that there is a massive amount of transmission from mother to baby. Our immune system and our metabolism in general is trained, is imprinted by the microbiome of birth and in, in the first 100 days, they say, or 1,000 days. It can have long-lasting consequences. Recent work has shown that mothers continue to mold the microbiomes of their infants over the next few years. But the diversity of the microbiome changes significantly between childhood and adulthood, says Sagata. The baby microbiome is not the adult microbiome. So it cannot be the mother of birth imprinting forever the gut microbiome. In follow-up experiments, the researchers largely ruled out the possibility that the new microbes came from the food people ate, because those microbes weren't able to colonize the gut very well. We know that the mother is imprinting the microbiome at birth, but that is not explaining the microbes we are seeing in the adults. It has to be transmission. It has to be that what we have in the gut is coming from the gut of other individuals. For the new global analysis of microbiomes, Segata, Bayes, Kuleme, and their colleagues honed their tools enough to recognize previously unknown species and different strains of the same species. Using these tools, they examined more than 9,700 samples of stool and saliva from 20 countries on five continents. These represented communities with very diverse lifestyles and covered the full range of the human lifespan and many different living arrangements. They traced more than 800,000 strains of microbes between families, roommates, neighbors, and villages, and calculated what percentage of shared species were the same strain. As they expected, they found that the most sharing of strains happened between mothers and infants in the first year of life. About half of the shared species found in the infant's guts were strains that spread from the mother. The mother's influence diminished with time, slipping from 27% at age 3 to 14% by age 30. But the mother's influence didn't fully disappear. Some elderly people in China were shown to still share strains with their surviving centenarian mothers. Vina Tanija is an immunologist at the Mayo Clinic who wasn't involved in the study. When we think of microbiome, we are thinking that it is influencing our health. Yes, it is. But what component decides which microbiome we harbor? Tanija says one of the more surprising tidbits in the findings was that although infants born vaginally shared more strains with their mothers than infants born by C-section did, this difference vanished by the age of three. People make a big deal out of it. They have shown that there is no difference after three years, so it should not be a big thing. But question is, if there is no difference, what aspect determines what bacteria we harbor? And that probably is more of a genetic makeup. What kind of genetic makeup we have, what kind of immune response we have in our body, the environment we live in, that milieu inside probably determines what bacteria can survive. In fact, that view was corroborated by a study published in March of this year in Cell Host and Microbe. It found that babies born via C-section received less of their mother's microbiomes than babies born vaginally, but that they didn't miss out because they received more microbes from breast milk. As we get older, a sizable portion of our microbiomes continues to come from the people we live with or near. 
Unsurprisingly, the study by Sagata and colleagues found that spouses and other physically intimate partners shared a lot of microbes. 13% of the gut species they shared were of the same strain, as were 38% of their shared oral species. But people who lived together platonically weren't far behind at 12% for shared gut species and 32% for shared oral species. That's because, as Sagata, Bayes, Kuluma, and their team found, the single most important determinant of transmission was time spent together. People living under one roof shared the most strains, but even people living in the same village tended to have more strains in common than people separated by greater distances. The frequency of strain sharing was consistent across different societies, but the team did confirm previous findings that people in non-westernized countries tend to have more diverse microbiomes. The researchers also found that strains held in common could be lost over time. Twins growing up together had about a 30% strain-sharing level that dropped to about 10% after 30 years of living apart. Sagata thinks it's likely that most of the other strains of shared species also come from other people, primarily from close contacts like friends or co-workers, but maybe also from people we encounter far more briefly and casually. But spend a lot of time with your cat or dog? You're probably not sharing a lot of strains with them. Sagata says animals mostly harbor microbial species that don't typically colonize or persist in humans. The findings are the strongest evidence to date that we share parts of our microbiomes with the people we spend the most time with. Ilana Brito is an associate professor in biomedical engineering at Cornell University. She says the fact that the authors were able to see this pattern of transmission across the globe and not just in a single population was striking. It's like finding a signal across the noise. These data sets are extremely noisy. Brito says that's because there are many mutations happening across these different organisms. It's not clear how microbiome organisms spread between people. Kissing and sex explain some of it, but microbes could also be transmitted through droplets spewed by coughs and sneezes, or they could be picked up from contaminated surfaces. There's also still a lot to learn about which microbes are more easily spread than others. Answering that question is critical for understanding the implications of the idea that microbiome organisms can spread. Now that the extent of sharing has revealed the patterns of distribution of unique microbes, we can examine what happens in disease. Here's Jose Clemente, whom we mentioned earlier. So in that sense, I think this work is really fundamental because they now provide us a measure of how often do we expect to share strains with in our family, someone that we're cohabiting with. Some diseases that aren't usually considered contagious could have an overlooked communicable aspect. Some E. coli strains, for example, may release toxins that could increase the risk of cancer. People with certain colorectal cancers, whose microbiomes contain more of a fusobacterium species, tend to have a worse prognosis and worse outcomes with treatment. Gut microbes that affect glucose and insulin levels in the body have been tied to obesity and conditions like metabolic syndrome and even type 2 diabetes. An unbalanced gut microbiome has been linked to neurodegeneration, and it's theorized that it might play a role in brain conditions like Alzheimer's disease. Here's Sagata again. If these diseases are 
at least partially dependent on the microbiome, and then the microbiome is at least partially transmissible, then these diseases become at least partially transmissible. And so this is something that changes how we look at even the treatment potentially of some diseases. But there's a catch, says Clemente. With these type of diseases, what you have is perhaps a genetic component, a risk factor that is genetic, that combined with the presence or absence of certain microbes is going to eventually result in the conditions. So I think understanding the amount to which a certain microbiome contributes to that risk, that's the hard question. And understanding how this genetic background with this microbiome leads to a disease. So understanding, is it like 90% to 10%? Is it 50-50? And how do those things interact with each other? I think that's the hard question that we're all trying to answer. Even most studies that find such associations can't tease apart whether the microbes cause the disease or simply find it easier to colonize a person at risk for the disease. If bad microbes that raise the risk of non-communicable health problems can be transmitted between people, then in theory, good microbes that lower those risks can be as well. Some studies suggest that microbes can be protective, especially in early life, against conditions like asthma and allergies. Deliberately sharing pieces of healthy microbiomes, such as through fecal transplants, has proved astonishingly successful in treating certain diseases and infections. Jens Walter is a professor of ecology, food, and the microbiome at University College Cork and the APC Microbiome Ireland. Essentially, the human host has evolved to maintain these microbial population, and it has evolved in these elaborate systems, you know, because we get real benefits out of these populations. That's why Walter is unconvinced by the hypothesis that our shared microbes might be causing diseases, and is more drawn to the opposite idea, sometimes called the old friends or hygiene hypothesis. It proposes that throughout evolution, our microbiomes may have helped to train the responses of our immune system. The modern increase in the use of antibiotics and antiseptics and our greater general cleanliness could therefore be altering the makeup of the microbiome and creating more health vulnerabilities for us. Here's Walter again. We are definitely not spreading microbes more readily in today's world as compared to 100 years ago. So no matter what Segata found here, nobody can convince me on this, you know, because we have antibiotics now, we have much more C-sections, you know, we have much more hygiene, we have smaller families, and so on, and so on. All of these developments came hand in hand now with a bloom in allergies, a bloom in autoimmune diseases. Inflammatory bowel disease, multiple sclerosis, rheumatoid arthritis, and type 1 diabetes, all of which are considered immunological disorders rather than communicable diseases, are more prevalent in westernized societies that tend to use antibiotics and antiseptics extensively. The beneficial or detrimental effects of sharing could depend on which species and strains are shared, which is still a bit of a black box. Brito says we should also consider... It's maybe not a single organism now, it's bunches of organisms. Basically, communities of organisms in the microbiome that get transmitted together. Certain organisms might matter more in one community context than another. Sagata, Bayes, Columa, and their colleagues analyzed only healthy individuals in their study, but in their ongoing research 
They're analyzing data sets from people with diseases to see if those findings illuminate the connections between health and microbiomes. They're also currently sampling data from three daycare centers, from infants and their parents, siblings, pets, and teachers. The researchers are hoping to figure out how the microbes are transmitted and how long it takes for specific gut and oral microbes to jump between people. Bayes Kaluma says tracking the study of microbiome organisms was neglected for a long time because we didn't realize their impact on our health. But she says now that we have the techniques to study the microbiome, we see it associated virtually with any disease. Arlene Santana helped with this episode. I'm Susan Vallett. For more on this story, read Yasmin Saplikolu's full article, Global Microbiome Study Gives New View of Shared Health Risks, on our website, quantamagazine.org. Just a quick note about this episode, research by Sagata and his group has received funding from the Simons Foundation, which also funds this editorially independent magazine and podcast. Simons Foundation funding decisions have no influence on our coverage. Quanta Magazine is an editorially independent online publication supported by the Simons Foundation to enhance public understanding of science. <laughs> <laughs>